Well, once again, uh, Jeff, you know, picks a song that really is quite appropriate for the topic at hand today. Of course, grace is appropriate for any sermon, any, right. anything in the Bible. It's the Bible's primary theme is the incredible grace of our, of our Lord. But we're going to be talking about grace today, grace in Christian living, grace in life. Uh, so far in our journey through the first century uh, church, we've seen the mighty move of the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We've seen thousands of people believe in Jesus and get saved. We've seen some of these same believers suffer persecution, uh, Peter and John, and, and others even suffer uh, death with uh, uh, Stephen. And then we've seen some people reject Christ. Last week we focused on that from uh, chapter 7, as the early Jewish leaders uh, weren't quite ready to accept the freeness of salvation. And anybody that claimed that all you have to do is believe in Jesus to be saved, then uh, they're, they're, not, uh, they're not right, they thought. And so they reacted stiff-necked and really strongly to uh, St uh, Stephen's great message of salvation by grace. But uh, today, as we continue to look through the early days of the church, we come to an example of an individual who believes the gospel. He heard the good news about salvation uh, through faith alone in Christ alone. He believed it. He was born again. But then he continues to struggle with some of his old habits. Can you relate to that? Uh, if we're honest, we can all relate to that. Uh, it's true. Old habits die hard. Why does it seem so much harder to develop new habits than it does to fall back on your old ones? The question of sin in the life of believers has really occupied the minds of people since the time of Christ. I mean, from everyday believers to theologian, everyone wants to know, why do Christians keep on sinning? Do you ever find yourself sort of introspectively asking that question? Boy, why did I do that? You know, I, I know I shouldn't do that. What in the world was I thinking? Right? Or, what in the world was I thinking? <laughs> um, now, there have been lots of answers uh, that have been posed to that dilemma, most of them wrong. For example, some people will say, well, maybe they're not really Christians after all. Be careful, because the Bible is clear. It's not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we certainly don't want to make hasty judgments about someone's eternal destiny because of their behavior. We're not saved by works, and we don't prove we're saved by our works. Uh, some people say, well, maybe they lost their salvation when they sinned, right? That's, the one, that's one big way that many churches and denominations through the centuries have chose to address the issue of sin in the life of a believer. Oh, you sinned? Okay, you got to get saved again. God took back uh, his eternal life that he gave you when you believe the gospel, which, of course, if it was eternal life, then it can never be lost or he's given it the wrong name. So that doesn't really make sense. But that's the way a lot of people rationalize this issue of sin. Of course, they never rationalize it that way for themselves. It's just other people. You know, that person, his sin or her sins are so big that they can't possibly be saved. But I'm sure God is quite content with the sins that I commit every day of jealousy, you know, lust, uh, anger, discontentment, whatever. You know. 
But all of those answers are, are not satisfying, and none of them make sense when you look at the biblical teaching about the security of the believer and about the grace of God. So how do we explain sin in the life of a believer? For that, I want us to turn uh, to Acts chapter 8 and, and beginning in verse 9. And we're going to look at a historical account of a man, as I said, who hears the gospel, believes the gospel, gets saved, but then quickly falls back to his sinful ways. Let's give some context. Uh, first of all, I want to read just the first eight verses. It's not really our focal passage, but it kind of bridges the gap between where we left off last week and what we're talking about this week. So chapter 8, verse 1, now Saul was consenting to his death. Now Saul, if you remember, came on the scene three verses earlier when those who stoned Stephen to death laid their robes at the feet of a man named Saul. This, of course, is one of those walk-ons that we've talked about in Luke's narrative where a character will come on the scene in a minor role only later to come back and play a predominant role. And Saul is the biggest walk-on of them all because, of course, he gets saved in chapter 9 on the road to Damascus and then really much of the rest of the book of Acts, uh, starting in about chapter 13, is about Paul's missionary endeavors and his journeys and so forth. But this is that same Saul. But talking about grace, listen to the way Luke describes Saul. If this isn't a picture of grace, I don't know what is. Uh, at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stayed at Jerusalem. By the way, James, the Lord's brother, who wrote one of the earliest books in the New Testament in the late 40s, he wrote to that dispersed crowd. This is, you know, after they'd been dispersed for a few years, but uh, that's what the book of James is, is who it's addressed to. And notice, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, here he comes up again, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. See, it just, uh, I digress for a second, but it, it really always bothers me the way people will be so dismissive of some of the worst sinners. And, and I get it. We should take a stand against sin. We need to speak truth. And this is a world that is really sold under sin, and it's getting more and more blatant and more and more pervasive. But let's never forget that God's grace can reach even the most murderous of Christians. Amen? And there but by the grace of God go I. And number four, or verse four, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And uh, the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed I mean, get the spiritual picture there. I mean, this was a pivotal moment in human history, and we're entering another one, by the way, soon. But this was that climactic moment when God came in the flesh, in the form of His Son, took on human flesh, died for our sins on the cross, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And it was just this, this pivotal moment in the cosmic struggle between God and, and Satan. And so, of course, in the early days of the church, as the Spirit of God is moving mightily and people are hearing the gospel and people are coming to faith in Christ, there's a lot of demonic opposition and demonic activity and spiritual uh, signs and wonders. And he says, And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. We'd already seen that in chapter 4 and 5 with the man at the beautiful gate. And notice there was great joy in that city. Talked about how joy is a 
key theme in Luke's writings in both his gospel and throughout his account of the early church. So here's what we see uh, here in the, you know, the, the, the setting the stage for this encounter with uh, this man who gets saved and falls back on his own uh, old habits. So we saw Stephen was buried. Saul continues to persecute believers. Christians flee the region. Philip joins the narrative, another walk-on. He was one of the deacons mentioned in chapter 6, but then he's going to take on a bigger role with his uh, evangelizing the Ethiopian eunuch. And, of course, the gospel message spreads, and there's incredible, uh, there are incredible miracles in, uh, in Samaria. So now let's pick up uh, Luke's account with uh, verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. So another person that was doing miracles in Samaria, but by satanic power, was a man who many people refer to sometimes as Simon Magus. Magus is the transliteration of the Greek word magos, meaning magician or sorcerer. That's this Simon. The magic that he did was not, however, some sleight of hand deception, but sorcery. The ability to control people and or nature by demonic or chemical powers. Uh, this ability had made him pretty popular. I mean, people would come from all over and, uh, and come to him to, to watch him perform these satanic signs. Uh, and he, he really kind of encouraged everyone to think he, he was a great power uh, whom God had sent. You know, this, they knew that something supernatural uh, was going on. So what do we know about this man, Simon? Luke kind of gives us a survey of his spiritual journey from lost to saved and then a glimpse at his early uh, Christian life. So I'd like to just kind of give an overview uh, as we walk through this passage of, first of all, his sin nature. We certainly see very blatantly. Uh, and then his salvation, and then his ongoing struggle, and then ultimately his shame over his own sin. So let's start with his sin nature, Simon's sin nature. The first thing we need to understand is that we all have one, <laughs> okay? Uh, sin is a universal condition. It's, it's called the depravity of man. Now, some theologians today define total depravity as total inability, meaning that they don't think you can believe the gospel. God has to force you to believe. It's called Calvinism. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you do have the ability to reject or receive the gospel. It's a bona fide offer. Whosoever will, let him come drink freely of the water of life. Come one, come all. Um, the Bible teaches the election, absolutely, but it also teaches free will. That's one of those biblical antinomies that we just take at face value because the Bible teaches them. We can't understand them as the Paul talks about in Romans chapter 11. Uh, but we're not called to reconcile all of the truths of Scripture. Uh, we accept them. The Trinity, for example. How can you be three but one? I don't know, <laughs> but God's Word says it. How can Christ be 100% God yet 100% man, the hypostatic union? I don't know, but I believe it, right? How can a virgin have a child that becomes our Savior? I don't know, but the Bible teaches it. So there are a lot of truths that seem contrary to logic, and we accept them. And one of those is the fact that we are all sinners, yet we all have the ability to receive the free gift of the remedy for our sin, the payment that was made on our behalf, uh, so that we don't have to face that uh, penalty. 
We know this from Romans 3.23, for example. All have sinned. Uh, or Ecclesiastes 7.20, there's not a man on earth who does not sin. So we all have a sin nature. And that sin nature, you see, doesn't go away when we get saved. The new nature comes in alongside, takes up residence. We're indwelt, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit now teaches us, guides us, leads us, convicts us, encourages us, and assures us, does all of the ministries of the Holy Spirit that the New Testament talks about. But that old man is still there to rear its ugly head. Um, and, and we see this, for example, in Galatians chapter 5. The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And that's the reason uh, Paul says we should walk in the spirit, that is, listen to his voice, obey him, and we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. So Romans 7 is very uh, instructive here because Paul describes how sin is willing, it wills to have us. Sin is a formidable foe. Uh, Satan wants to keep believers defeated. He wants to keep us walking in the flesh, catering to the flesh, listening to that uh, wrong voice that's saying, look how shiny and red and delicious looking this apple is. Wouldn't you like to take a bite? And the Spirit of God is over there saying, no, God's Word tells a different story. God's Word says, no, that's not good for you. It will harm you. It will lead to great unpleasantness. Listen to my voice. Heed my Word. And so really the Christian life comes down to who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to trust, really? Are you going to walk by faith and not by sight? Recognizing no matter how enticing that forbidden fruit may look, it's not good because God's Word says it's not. Or are you going to walk by sight? And uh, say, oh boy, that looks great. I think I'll try a bite. Right. So we all struggle with the old man, that, that sin nature. If we walk in the Spirit, listening to His voice, we can overcome the old nature. And that's what's called the progressive sanctification process in the life of a believer. So we are saved once for all from the penalty of sin the minute we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for our sins. We are being saved every day, being rescued from the power of sin as we yield to the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, stay in the Word, and, and grow spiritually mature over time. Sometimes it's three steps forward, sometimes it's two steps back, but it's a process. We will be saved ultimately once and for all with finality from the very presence of sin when we get to heaven, and, uh, and, and we will not have to, to wrestle with sin. But every person in this room, every person watching us by live stream, every person that watches this video or listens to this podcast knows that we have a sin nature. And that means that we each have certain propensities, certain weaknesses, temptations that are tied to our own personal sin nature, our old personal old man that bring us down. And by the way, Satan knows this too. You know, the very next verse in the passage that Fred had us read from First Peter, what was it, 5, 6, and 7 is verse 8, which I'm pretty sure says, Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so, you know, what's your weakness? What's your weakness? You need to be aware of that. The things that tempt one person might not be the things that tempt another. The things that tempt you might not be the things that tempt me. Okay, but Satan knows our weaknesses. And, uh, you know, 
I've never been tempted to rob a bank, for example. I like money, but that's never been a temptation. I've never, I can honestly say, I've never sat up at night and contemplated and planned out, you know, how to rob a bank. And our candidate for sheriff is probably glad to, to know that. <laughs> uh, so, but there are other things that do tempt me, right? And the same thing is true in, in your life. In the book of Hebrews, that's why the writer says, lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares us. We all have certain unique areas of the flesh that are especially difficult to overcome. Uh, the book of John, 1 John calls this the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and uh, the pride of life. That's, that's, that's what we're susceptible to. Now, if we get back to our story, Simon had a few weak areas in his life based on his upbringing, based on his life pre-conversion, before he met the Lord. And, you know, those things don't just disappear. You know, think about a, uh, the proverbial, you know, 20-something, you know, uh, punk rocker. I don't even know if punk rock's a thing anymore, but I'm trying to paint an image. You know, earrings all over the place, tattoos all over the place, dark, gothic, you know, uh, attire, listening to satanic music, and just, you know, about as far from the Lord as you can imagine. And let's say they meet a Christian who shares the clear and simple gospel with them. The Spirit of God gets a hold of them, convicts them of their need for a Savior. They place their faith in that moment in Jesus Christ, and they're born again instantly, just like that. Do the you know, earrings and nose rings and everything else fall off, and the clothes instantly change to something more appropriate, and they turn into just your stereotypical clean-cut kid? Of course not. A change took place inwardly, that person's a child of God, and God's grace is sufficient, and God loves that child just like He loves someone who never got into all of those sins. But we all bring with us certain baggage that is a part of our fallen nature. And that nature will someday be set aside when this mortal puts on immortality, when this corruptible puts on incorruption, and we meet the Lord. But right now, it's a formidable foe. So to get a sense of Simon's old sinful nature as we read through the text, I want to play a little game I like to call Simon the Sorcerer, says. Some of you older folks will remember this childhood game. But Simon was not just your average unbeliever. Right, he had some big bags. He was into some pretty serious stuff. The first thing is paganism. You know, some, some unbelievers are sort of, for lack of a better description, run-of-the-mill, okay? I mean, they don't know the Lord. If they died, they'd spend eternity in a literal place of torment called hell, separated from their Creator. But, you know, from a human perspective, they're generally oh, good people. I mean, they would open the door for you at the grocery store. They might help you carry your groceries out or rake your leaves. They might be morally, you know, fairly good people, but their heart is desperately wicked. They don't know the Lord. They need a Savior. Um, but then other people are believers who are really uh, active for the other side, let's say. Um, Simon was into some pretty satanic stuff. Let's take a look. He, he practiced sorcery. Now, those of you that have studied this biblical term sorcery know there's one term sorcery that's used in Revelation called pharmakia, where we get our English word pharmaceutical or pharmacy, that thing, that type of thing. This is a different word. This is, where, this is the only time this verb is used in the New Testament. Maguo, and it just means the practice of witchcraft or magic. In fact, most 
English translations uh, talk about how he practiced magic. The New King James, which I'm reading from, translates it sorcery. Uh, but no matter, it's still just the same thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's magic that's rooted in satanic uh, power. Uh, Simon basically camped out in Samaria and opened up shop. And by his work in the region, he had started a deep religious movement. He knew how to relate his activity to the religious beliefs of the Samaritans and shade it with just enough truth that people would come uh, running. And uh, in fact, it's possible, we get this from verse 10, which we'll look at in a second, where people thought he was a god, uh, that he might have even passed himself off as a forerunner of the Messiah. We, we don't really know. So he was into some paganism, but he was also one of his propensities, if you will, was popularity. Because he was able to do such shocking things with his witchcraft, he became very popular. Simon was the ticket in town. And uh, we see going on that the, the whole city was astonished uh, by him. And in verse 10, they all gave heed to him. He was very popular. Verse 11, they heeded him because he had astonished them. So Luke is painting a picture here of this guy's uh, well-known status in the community. But another major weakness of Simon's was his pride. Now, of course, pride is a universal problem for all of us, like we just looked at in 1 John 2, 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. But some people have a greater pride problem than others. Um, and, and Simon clearly fit into this category. Remember, he said he was claiming that he was someone great. Anytime you proclaim your own greatness, you have a pride problem. And that is, by the way, one of the spirits of the Antichrist that we looked at last year in that video, in that uh, teaching series on Sunday mornings, uh, that I think is evident. If you read the description of the Antichrist in Scripture, he has incredible pride. And so then, if, as First John tells us, the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work among us, we ought to see an uptick in that. Well, what do we see? What did we talk about last year? We see this narcissism epidemic. We see, you know, incredible you know, pridefulness uh, that is on the uptick. But this was one of Simon's uh, weaknesses. And then another major weakness was that he craved the power that his evil activities brought him. But his power, as I said, was not divine. It was satanic. Much like the satanic magicians of Egypt or Babylon centuries earlier, Simon used his Luciferian power to gain followers into his sort of cult following. Uh, he was the first Luciferian, really, of the church age, at least as according to the testimony of Scripture. And, of course, many, many more uh, would follow. I actually uh, talked about that uh, in, in, with Brandon House in that interview that I referenced in the first hour. Uh, he kind of asked my opinion on it, and we traded uh, speculations about just how much of the church today is apostate. Uh, but remember, uh, Simon became addicted to power. He, he Remember, he thought he was someone great. And uh, people were saying, this man is the great power of God. Of course, it was not really the power of God, but uh, he didn't mind if the people thought that it was the power of God. So there you have it. The, the old Simon had some serious weaknesses. There were many more, I'm sure. We all have them, but these are the ones that at least Luke kind of reminds us of that jump off of the page. But then something happened. As we survey his journey, 
we see that he comes to Christ. Uh, let me read verses 12 and 13. Uh, it says, But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Listen. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, sadly, even though the testimony of Scripture could not be more clear, we just read it, many theologians, because of some of the false approaches to sin and believers that I talked about a moment ago, read that and they say, well, he didn't really believe. What? Where does the text say that? You know, more than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon belief, believing in Jesus. It would be bizarre indeed for the Bible to tell us that someone believed in Jesus and was baptized when in fact they weren't really saved. And certainly the text never says that. So I believe this is a reference to his uh, actual salvation experience. The text says so. Simon also himself believed and was baptized. Jesus said plainly, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. He doesn't say whoever believes in me and never sins again, or whoever believes in me and changes his old ways instantly, or whoever believes in me and doesn't sin a whole lot, or whoever believes in me and doesn't commit the big sins. He just says whoever believes in me. So the moment faith meets the gospel, at that precise moment in time, a change occurs. We, as Jesus said in John 5, 24, we pass from death to life and shall never come into judgment. In that instant, Simon passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. Uh, John, Jesus himself said it this way in John 3, 36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Did Simon believe? Absolutely. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Later on in uh, Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas would tell the Philippian jailer when he asks, What must I do to be saved? Well, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, just like so many more had before him. And it's interesting to me that in the same passage in Luke chapter in Acts chapter 8, when Luke tells us that uh, many believed what Philip was preaching concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, men and women, and then he mentions Simon by name, nobody ever questions the salvation of the men and women who got saved. <laughs> well, they, they really got saved, but no, not Simon. Why? Well, because he struggled in a big way. And let's look at his struggle. Uh, as I said, when he got saved, an instant change took place spiritually. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation instantly. instantly. Uh, and his position was, was set at that point. He went from being a child of wrath, an unbeliever, to being a child of God, John 1.12, because of his faith. He received by faith the gift of eternal life. So his position changed. But his practice didn't instantly change. I wish it did. I wish there was such a thing as poof sanctification where you get saved and, and then poof, you're perfect, <laughs> right? Uh, but we're not perfect, right? And everybody's in a different place in their walk with Christ. And the Bible talks about apostate believers who've totally fallen away. It talks about backslidden believers. It talks about believers that are on the sidelines and shipwrecked in their, in their faith. But, of course, it also talks about godly, mature believers. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about, broadly speaking, three kinds of people. The natural, that are unsaved. The carnal, that are saved but really struggling with sin. 
and the spiritual, those that are saved and also walking by faith and not by sight. So when Simon got saved, his old nature didn't disappear. There is this ongoing struggle that we talk about. Old habits uh, die hard. So let's take a look at uh, Simon's struggle, beginning in verse 14. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. This is a transitional age. There were still believers that in different parts of the world that hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. We see this all the way up through Acts chapter 19. Today, Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 12, the moment we believe Christ, we get the Holy Spirit, so we don't have this transitional delay. Uh, verse uh, uh, 17, Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. Interesting, isn't it? You know, he was uh, an opportunist. He had spent I don't know how long uh, living as an unbeliever, making uh, ungodly money uh, uh, through his satanic uh, rituals and so forth. And listen to what he said. Give me this power also that anyone whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. So there it is. His old fleshly nature rearing its ugly head. His desire for power. Remember, that was one of his weaknesses. And popularity. You know, his, his pride and his old pagan ways working together to lead him away from his new nature in Christ. So I guess the question is, do you recognize the old man when he rears his head in your life? How do you respond? And I think really that's what the Christian life comes down to, is recognizing the flesh from the Spirit and responding appropriately. And by the way, the more you respond to the flesh the easier it is to respond to the flesh the next time. And the more you respond to the Spirit, the harder it is for the flesh to break through, right? It's called habits, right? And, uh, and so let's see how Simon responded uh, by looking at his, uh, his shame. If you pick it up in verse 20, but Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Now, this is where a lot of people begin to try to justify their erroneous conclusion that Simon wasn't a Christian because of the word perish. But they don't understand the meaning of the word. The word perish is the word apolumi in Greek. It just means face serious harm. It doesn't have to mean go to hell. Context determines meaning. It's the same exact word, for example, that the disciples used when they were on the Sea of Galilee and the storm came up and Jesus was asleep and they went and woke up Jesus and they said, Lord, save us, we're perishing. Now, they didn't mean, Lord, give us eternal life, we're going to hell. They meant rescue us from drowning, we're about to die. And, and Peter was just issuing a strong rebuke with temporal consequences threatened because of Simon's behavior. He was not threatening them with hell. Perish does not mean hell. It can mean that. For example, in John 3.16, the clear contrast is between everlasting life and perishing, i.e. everlastingly, because the context determines meaning. But perish in and of itself, if you look it up, apolumi, it just means face either physical destruction, physical judgment, or it could mean eternal, depending on the context. And he goes, you have neither path 
uh, part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. I don't know why that is so confusing to so many people. When we sin, our heart's not right with God. doesn't mean positionally. We're always part of the family of God. Nothing can change that. But as John tells us in 1 John, there's a richness to the fellowship with the Lord. And when we sin, that fellowship is strained. We're not abiding in close, intimate fellowship with Christ as a believer. right? So our heart's not right. And so th this is the description here of uh, Simon. And he goes on to say, repent. Repent just means change your mind, right? Uh, that's all the word means. It's a compound word in Greek, meta, naio, meta, again, naio, to think, I think again, or to change your mind. I've rethought this. So he's saying, you better rethink this. You better rethink this, Simon, uh, this wickedness, and pray if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you, perhaps depending on whether you truly repent of it. Now, if you're going to continue to walk in this old way, Simon, and continue to go back to your old ways, yeah, you're facing some pretty swift destruction because God is not going to allow believers to continue down that road for very long before he calls you home. In fact, there is sin that leads to death. 1 John 5 tells us that. Not a sin, but sin. Sometimes the most loving thing a father can do when we are uh, uh, discrediting the name of Christ and bringing harm to our family and to our church and also bringing on the temporary consequences of sin in our own life is to call us home. I'm not suggesting that's true of, of all the time, but, but you know, because sometimes godly people die young. I mean, it's just a fallen world we live in, and sometimes bad things happen to good people. But according to Scripture, there is a point where you can go too far, and God may call you home. Right? Uh, he goes on to say, "For I see that you are poisoned by the bitterness and bound by bitterness and bound by iniquity." In other words, you're poisoned. There's something within you that is affecting your behavior. You know, if you take a physical poison, some kind of toxin, it's going to manifest itself with physical symptoms. And sometimes you go to the doctor and they're going to run some tests and they're going to do blood work and urine work and all that and try to figure out what in the world's going on. And sometimes they may find, oh, they ate something they shouldn't have or they drank something they shouldn't have or they came in contact with something they shouldn't have. There's this toxin in their body, right? Well, there's a toxin in all of our bodies, and we have the remedy, which is the Word of God. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And the Spirit of God convicting us. But if we cater to that toxin, uh, it's going to affect our outward behavior. So how did Simon respond? Well, he responded with shame. He didn't try to self-justify or make excuses, at least as far as the biblical record is concerned. He realized that he deserved the consequences that Peter spoke of. So he humbly asked for prayer. Verse 24, pray to the Lord for me that none of the things that you've spoken may come upon me. You know, he, he had a, a recognition, it, is, it seems, that what he was doing uh, was wrong. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that uh, godly sorrow leads to repentance, right? By the way, repentance doesn't mean crying or being sorry you know, sorrow can, can lead to repentance, and shame can lead to repentance, but repentance just means a change of mind, a recognition that what you were doing is wrong. And so that's what Simon says. Pray to the Lord for me. Now Luke does not tell us exactly where Simon's life went after this, or how many more times he may have stumbled in this area. 
But we can definitely make some observations from his brief response and this brief episode in his early Christian life. First of all, he didn't deny Peter's charges. He didn't try to curse Peter using his old satanic powers. He acknowledged Peter's God as his own true God and the one with the power to provide consequences or to forgive. And throughout Acts, Luke, who is this careful historian writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, is always quick to point out when someone stiffens their neck and doesn't respond appropriately, both in his gospel and in Acts. We see it with Agrippa, with Pilate, with the Jewish leaders that we looked at last week. But here, Simon does not do that. Luke doesn't say Simon stiffened his neck. In essence, he said, pray for me. So what about you? Can you relate to Simon the sorcerer? I mean, his journey is just like ours. The details are, set, are different, but the journey is the same. We're not all performing satanic rituals for money, but we all struggle with that old man in, inside of us. So I hope that if you're sitting here today, you've gone from being under the penalty of sin to having that penalty removed because of your faith in Christ Jesus. I hope you've been saved. And if you are saved, then I know, because I know what Scripture teaches, that you're still struggling, like we all do. And the task of the believer is to walk in the Spirit so that we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And if you are in a season of life where you are catering to those old habits that are hard to keep down, right? Hard to keep the old man down, right? Then I hope that the Spirit of God is bringing this feeling of shame in your heart so that you will repent. And turn back to God. So what's what's the takeaway? Well, Scripture gives us the takeaway in Ephesians chapter 4. Put off concerning your former conduct the old man. And put on the new man. See, that's the, the task of the Christian every day. Paul and the New Testament at large, we see this in, in Peter's writings as well, would not juxtapose this old way of life against the new way of life if it weren't possible to act like the old man. So anybody today who tells you that someone who's living like the old man, well, they can't possibly be a Christian. Either they lost it or they never had it. Any of those answers, they're not biblical. Now, certainly not everybody who claims they're a Christian is. A lot of false professors out there, but it's not because of their behavior that they're not a Christian. It's because they never trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation. I'm not suggesting for a second that everybody who says they're a Christian really is. What I am saying is that we have no biblical justification to judge the genuineness of someone's salvation based on the way they're behaving. Because there is no sin that an unbeliever can commit that a believer cannot also commit if he or she is walking in the flesh. You know, a lot of people like to work out physically. A lot of people that aren't on the platform right now. Uh, hiking, biking, you know, just physical exercise. Go to the gym. But we need to exercise our spiritual side as well. And, uh, you know, we talked about this last week as we began our study of, of, of Proverbs, or on Wednesday, I should say. Uh, so the takeaway is pretty simple. Walk in the new man, put on the new man, and you won't fulfill the old man. You are that new person in Christ already, right? You, you've become born again if you've trusted Christ. If you haven't, that's step number one. Because you'll never be able to kill those old habits in your own strength. You've got to have the spiritual power. But now live like the new person uh, that you are. So through the journey, 
we've got to remember who we are in Christ. When you find yourself returning to your old habits from pre-conversion life, remember, no child of the king should act like that. Let's act like the new man. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage today. Lord, it's so convicting and yet encouraging because it kind of puts us all on level ground and it helps us recognize that we all are on a journey. We thank you for the gift of eternal life that you've given us and the gift of your spirit who is there to convict and encourage and strengthen and guide and lead. And so, Lord, we pray that we would all hear his still small voice today, heed it, and be, become men and women of strong, mature faith uh, for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.